Welcome to the Turfgrass Hotline, brought to you by our partners at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in a single pass. And our partners at Intelligro, manufacturers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking, Rich Buckley. I want to start our discussion about 2019 with a look back at 2018 here on the Turfgrass Hotline. And I would say my feeling was, number one, the salient point was Bruce Clark's lawn died a gray leaf spot. <laughs> and then after that, it was patch diseases and just wet conditions, which was pretty soupy. So let's start with, first of all, was it more abiotic than biotic or more biotic than abiotic in the lab this year? Okay, well, for uh, 2018, we did about 675 golf turf samples, and we run roughly about 45% abiotic stress. Mm. You know, and that's, that number skewed a little bit because guys send me samples of diseases they know are diseases. Generally, most of the problems you see on golf turf are abiotic, right, as opposed to diseases. That's correct. But last year, gray leaf spot was pretty nasty. Does yeah. that set us up for some problems starting this spring? Well, we don't assume that gray leaf spot or the pathogen pyricularia overwinters. So, you know... What we're waiting for is is the appropriate weather conditions and the southern flow of moisture bringing the spores with it, you know, later in the summer and and early fall. So, you know, I can't assume that what happened last year is going to happen again this year. You know, the disease triangle interferes with that sort of thing. Because it blows in as well. Yeah, there's little evidence that it overwinters way back when Gail Schumann and Wakar uh, Uden had some data where they thought that it was overwintering. But uh, that's in contrast to some stuff from Dernoden and Kaminsky and, and Steve McDonald way back when they were grad students at Maryland saying that they never saw the disease until they started catching it in spore traps huh. with the southerly flow from the Gulf Coast region. Right. So now the spring is here and it started out at least in the Northeast with, I think, pink snow mold, prolonged pink snow mold conditions, and people were talking about brown ring pads. So let's talk a little bit about the pink snow mold. It was pretty widespread and persistent. No doubt, and we had a good winter for it. You know, one thing about pink snow mold is you don't need a whole lot of snow, but you need a lot of of moisture in the system, a lot of rain, you know, you, you, you persist at temperatures around 40, 45 degrees and regular rains, and that drives that pathogen really well. So, you know, as long as we're going to get, you know, even up into the mid 50s and regular rains like we've had really since last fall, it, it's going to drive it. Where May, it's still a concern. It may pop up, flare up, might not do it lot of damage at this point. Do, do you think because we really haven't had a lot of pressure from pink snow mold that the guys and folks that got it might have been that way got a little lackadaisical with their fungicide program or maybe their ryegrass or poa or bent was a little bit more susceptible because, you know, we're pushing them later in the fall now? I mean, it was just stressful to manage turf last fall in the Northeast, Rich. It was so wet. I often wonder if some of these more persistent problems, are they related to whether we're stressing the turf more the previous fall, or are they related to our, maybe we haven't had the problem and we've backed off a little bit on the fungicides. Uh, Maybe we've used fungicides too much and they're not as good anymore. And 
And certainly we have good data on pink snow mold out of the Pacific Northwest and Clint Maddox's group. So what would you say? I mean, is it a combination of those or you think we're doing one of them more than another? That's funny. I, I, the whole time I'm thinking, well, it's all of the above. <laughs> yeah. And uh, But the issue about guys getting lackadaisical a little, you know, you don't have a lot of pro- – I see that with pythium blight. Guys sort of don't have – you know, we don't have pythium conditions and they they get a little bit uh, – it, it gets out of their main focus and, and suddenly everyone's got flare-ups all over the place because out of the blue we have a hot and wet summer. You know, it's funny. You bring up pythium and we'll digress here for a minute, but – I think some of what Kaminsky found a few years ago is that we're getting pythiums that phosphites don't get because most people have written off many pythium problems through the chronic use of phosphites, wouldn't you say? Yeah, well, and that's the thing. Uh, with the number of different pythium species, it, it, you know, particularly in the root infections, you got to recognize that there's going to be variability in the efficacy of all the materials. So if you get kind of focused and and you know, maybe caught in a rut using one type of product over and over, the pythium species that aren't affected may come to the forefront and cause you problems. Well, so we've transitioned right to the pythium species. And we spoke earlier today and you talked to me about pythium root rock coming into the lab. You know, I hear a lot about pythium in the root zone. And I wonder if you couldn't give me a couple of second primer like you'd give to your guys in the Rutgers turf school that I meet all over the country that tell me you're the toughest professor that they had. Um, Well, give me a two minute on what kind of pythium problems I have in the root zone and why are they worse now? Well, one thing, pythium, you know, not being a fungus is most appropriately classified in with the algae. So, you know, water, uh, supersaturated soils, temperature ranges don't matter that much. Eric Nelson, way back when, had efficacy trial or uh, pathogenicity trials where they were, they were getting infections at as low as 40 degrees. So, you know, you come out of the winter, you have root zones holding water, you have 40, 50 degree root temperatures and, and some of these organisms take advantage of that situation. Are there a lot of pythiums? Uh, you know, Gloria Abad has a paper where she found 36 different species. What's the likelihood that a single application of anything is going to help you with that? Or some of them are not as seriously pathogenic. And then I'm thinking, okay, we can go down the wormhole of talking about the pathogen, but if you're in supersaturated conditions, you've also got a pretty sick root system. So some of it is your root system's not doing good and maybe pythium isn't helping it. Well, I think it's where I think pythium's part of the issue and uh, uh, maybe not the primary issue. I have a slide of a root zone that has a significant black discoloration to it. And the caption says, you can't spray this away. You know, you got to fix your site. You can dump all the fungicides you want on it. But if you have a poorly drained root zone, you're going to have crummy grass anyway. So, uh, you know, pythium just helps it down the hill. So this is one of those problems, a little bit like all your pals at the research center there, Murph and and Guajado and Hemfling, and I'm going to, you know, Chuck and Bruce and everybody that's worked on the Anthracnose project over the years, you know, would say that it's nitrogen mowing and top dressing and then fungicides. And so you'd say the same thing with pythium. It's, you know, you can't have super saturated conditions and not have pythium. Right. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's there in the soil. And when the conditions are right or favor the pathogen and have a negative impact on the host plant, you're going to get disease. So if you can remediate some of those stress issues, you know, air fire once in a while, something like that, 
you know, you can coexist. All right. So let me ask maybe a progressive question related to what I see is happening now. I was I was down in northern Jersey uh, earlier in the week, and it's certainly getting popular to let the weevils chew on the annual bluegrass and let the bent grass take over. There seems to be a growing tolerance for allowing the poa to get some injury. Is Pythium root rot selective like that or like summer patch might be? Is it is it a disease that will discriminate between uh, the different grasses? Some of the species of Pythium in the root zones will attack different grasses. You know, Pythium volutum, for instance, in a sand-based root zone on bent grass. This poa patch that they're talking about, Pythium torulosum right. or Pythium catenulatum. So there's a little bit of that, but generally uh, the same ones that cause root rot will also cause Pythium blight, Pythium afanerdematum. Right. You know, again, go, go, pointing back to Eric Nelson's work in the early 90s with rot roots and blight foliage all the same. It just at different temperatures and, and different condition, moisture conditions. And, so. and this is probably what trips up a lot of managers, wouldn't you say, Rich, that they don't typically associate Pythium problems outside of warm conditions, whether it's in the soil or it's in the foliage. Is, is that your sense? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. You know, guys don't expect it when it's cooler. You know, they see it in the fall and then they send us samples and it's late October and I'm telling them it's Pythium. But, well, how can it be Pythium? It's not 85 degrees. Right. So, so yeah, you know, the, the, the idea that, that Pythium is temperature dependent is a poor marker. I think moisture is the key component in the whole uh, uh, disease cycle with these diseases. So I want to wrap up our discussion today with a discussion about anthracnose since you talked about, you know, seeing it at times that you don't normally expect it. And we had, again, a conversation uh, earlier where I was saying, well, I, I was just listening to the guys uh, at Ohio, Hicks and Joe Rimmelspa talking about the issues in Ohio. And they talked about anthracnose and guys already seeing it for many of the same reasons, Rich, that you're talking about with Pythium root, right? You've got a just infrastructure that that's nasty and certainly grown grass in Southern Ohio uh, is not the easiest thing to do. Now, when I bring this up with you, as we've known each other all these years, you know, you continually have said to me, yeah, if they're getting anthracnose now, it's probably something they had last fall that's overwintering and starting up. Can you talk a little bit about how anthracnose lingers through the winter and then can become active again in the spring? With the basal crown rot, some folks say that's a different disease than the anthracnose foliar blight. In my world, it's just a more chronic situation and you get plants infected in the late summer and fall and fungus forms a we call a stroma on the crown or the lower leaf sheaths and it persists over the winter you know and these plants are compromised through the winter and as we start getting some et rising a little bit of heat on on the plants maybe you're starting to mow and traffic it a little bit plants that are compromised with uh, uh this infection that are carrying it begin to fail and and so what you're going to start to see are small yellow dime-sized spots out there that that represent individual plants that are starting to collapse under the the pathogen load so i've seen some work looking at early season anthracnose programs and they generally are not efficacious. Uh, I don't think there's really good early season anthracnose programs. A lot of guys don't get on them maybe until later in the season. Uh, what would you tell these people that are afflicted with this now, regardless of the ecology of it? Well, I'd be sitting there thinking, look, you already are seeing plants dying from this pathogen. 
It may or may not be able to infect other grasses at this point. The low temperature threshold is really poorly defined. You see 59, 60 degrees out there, and they go back to like proceedings of turf research conferences. I can think of like Jackson and Vargas and Dannenberger in the 80s doing like trying predictive models and stuff. So it's not real well defined. So we don't really know when it starts to infect grasses. Mm-hmm. With that being said, you got dead grass now. You got a pathogen load, you got an inoculum load already in your green. So you better start thinking about as we start warming up, you know, get on a fungicide program and maybe you ought to fertilize a little more and (laughs) follow the best management practices. You know, those 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 practices had a remarkable effect on the number of anthracnose samples that come into the lab. Uh, you know, I can point to the decreases in samples and say, oh, that's when Clark started talking about nitrogen. That's when Ingridato <laughs> talked about top dressing, you know, and, and so. I'm trying uh, to put you out of business, Rich. What the heck? I know. <laughs> It messes up the, the business model for sure, man. Well, listen, I want to give you a chance to promote the lab, but I have one more question that you said, and I don't want to miss it. And that was that you believe that there's evidence to suggest that the crown rot is a more chronic stage of the foliar blight. And, you know, when I hear you say that, I think about a uh, leaf spot and melting out uh, in the bluegrasses, right? The sort of you get light leaf spot and, and then if yeah. it's chronic, it melts out. Is it the same sort of thing for you? I feel like it is, you know, and maybe it's just bias of the way I was trained. But, you know, you get this foliar blight, you stress the grass in the summer for what, you know, you dry it down and you have a tournament or whatever and, and you build up inoculum that ultimately affects the crown. And that's a great vehicle to persist through the winter. So, you know, two phase diseases, leaf spot melting out is a great example. Pythium root rot and pythium foliar blight is another kind of way of thinking about it. You know, the fungus does a good job surviving in perfectly healthy plants in the roots. And then when the temperature is high and the soil supersaturated, it blows up onto the foliage and, and kills, you know, 600 square feet. Rich, thanks for that. And I want to give you a chance, while I know Clark and Murph are trying to put you out of business with all the great anthracnose research they've done down there over the years, I'd like you to take a minute and talk about how people can access your lab and where they can send samples. You can just Google Rutgers Plant Diagnostic Lab and you get all our contact information. We have a submission form and all you got to do is take a cup cutter, size plug, wrap it in the newspaper, uh, overnight express mail from anywhere in the country. We do samples in 43 different states. And uh, uh, give me as much information as you can about the situation in case we have to speculate on an abiotic stress. And we promise 24-hour turnaround and we respond with an email. We're here to help you. And uh, we've looked at uh, more than 20,000 plugs since we started. So Rich, from everybody out there, thanks a lot for your service. Appreciate you joining me today on the hotline. Frank, thank you very much. Thanks for giving us a voice. All right. Thank you. And thanks to our partners at Dryject, the only machine that aerates, top dresses, and amends in a single pass, and Intelligro, manufacturers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. I'm Frank Rossi. Thanks for joining us.